You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Let me pray for us as we open up Daniel chapter 2. Father, I pray uh, that you would speak. You know what's going on in our hearts and our lives. You know somebody that will watch us on the treadmill two years from now. You know uh, what's happening in the car on the way here, what will happen tomorrow. You hold the future. You control our hearts. Will you direct us towards you? Will you give me your words? <clears throat> Will you give us boldness to live in this broken world? Will you give us healing where there's hurt? And will you give us courage to repent where there's things holding us back? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever been in the blast zone before? You're like, what is that? Sounds like a Nerf game at some, you know, kids' adventure place or a water park ride or a zone or level on a video game. What is the blast zone? The blast zone, uh, whether you're talking about a toxic thing, a natural disaster, a military experience, is there's an initial hit of whatever happened. Virus, bomb, whatever it is that happened. And then there's the zone around it that's also affected. Ripple effect, collateral damage, and we've all experienced it before. Maybe not in the military, maybe not something nuclear, uh, but have you ever been at work and maybe you work for a boss, a manager who is volatile? He or she had a bad day, and now you're going to have a bad day. <laughs> oh, you've been in the blast zone before. Or maybe you were at a business where they emailed out new policies and you would mock them to your friends. And so you replied to one of your friends at the place making jokes about the new policy, but hit reply all. You just created a blast zone. Have you ever had autocorrect not help you out before on a text message? I was reading about a few of those this week. <clears throat> there was a husband and wife that were texting, and the husband just wrote his wife said, it's Friday, congratulations. She said, that's right, I'm not going to the gym. I'm gonna get pregnant and watch TV. <laughs> she was, he said, uh, wouldn't that require a conversation? <laughs> and she wrote back and said, oops, I meant I'm gonna get Pringles and watch TV. Autocorrect, my bad. Blast zone. Or maybe you're a student, you're in class, and one kid won't shut his mouth. That was me when I was in school. And now everybody's getting homework this weekend. That's the blast zone. And then sometimes it can be in military or nuclear. Some of you know uh, that I've been struggling with my health lately. About three weeks ago, I was in the hospital for different illness than what's causing me to lose my voice. Uh, I've been getting all kinds of illnesses. I think it's the Lord's sense of humor. Uh, this week I woke up, I had pink eye on Monday and thought, of course, it's vision weekend. Why would I be able to see? I mean, <laughs> Sunday I'm supposed to be able to preach. Now my voice is going away. And so it's like a fun new adventure every day. Let's just see what happens. But uh, I'm laying in a hospital bed. There's only so much you can do. In a hospital bed, they, I was on a no food diet. So that's not fun, by the way. You can only sleep so long. And so I start binge watching different shows. I needed some, some encouragement, so I started binge watching a docu-series from HBO in 2019 about Chernobyl. Yeah, it's encouragement, right? And so if you want to look it up and watch it yourself, it is creatively titled Chernobyl. There you go. And it documents the greatest nuclear disaster in our world's history on April 26, 1986. And to put it into the context, if you didn't grow up in the 80s, you don't understand 
how afraid of Russia, the USSR, I'm sorry, the Soviet Union, that we were as Americans. You had never seen characters like this guy. We got him? <laughs> there we go. That's not Mikhail Gorbachev. It might be a young Putin. Um, he does have his shirt off. He's not on a horse. But I will break y'all. You know that guy. And maybe you didn't grow up going to school where you practice for a new... I remember we'd have bomb shelter, like, awareness day or whatever, and, and we'd have to go hide under our desk with our math book, and I'm like, good, the math book can do something. It does not protect you from nuclear fallout, by the way. <clears throat> um, but in the midst of the Cold War, where Russia's lying to America, America's lying to Russia, and we're building up nuclear weapons. Today, there are about known 23,000 nuclear warheads. At that time, there were as many as 75,000 in Russia, or Soviet Union, I'm sorry, and the United States had about 95% of those. They also had nuclear power plants. That's what Chernobyl was. Chernobyl was a nuclear power plant with four reactors. And what happened was, on one evening, they were doing a safety test, and it went bad. Why? Well, it's complicated, because everybody lies to everybody. However, human error, design flaws, system issues, cultural issues, lots of factors, it's complicated. But in the documentary, what they tried to do is show how the Soviet Union tried to handle the cleanup. At first, it was a cover-up. They weren't even going to acknowledge it. We know historically, factually, that is true uh, because they didn't acknowledge it to the world until Sweden, who, by the way, is 620 miles away from Chernobyl, called and said, we're picking up radiation coming from you because of the wind. What's going on? We have a minor problem. Well, it wasn't a minor problem. There was an explosion, the equivalent of more than some have estimated 400 times the power of Hiroshima. And so you got radiation that's now going all over the Soviet Union and Europe, as far away as Belgium and the Netherlands. How big is the zone? Well, in the documentary, it's interesting. There's this one scene where there's a main politician and there's a main scientist. The politician's kind of working everything on the bureaucratic side. The scientist is telling them what's going to happen, how we can try and resolve some of these things. And Mikhail Gorbachev, the eighth and final leader of the Soviet Union, comes in. He goes, I have 10 minutes. The scientist starts to give his pitch, says all the things they need to do. The reactor's going to melt through the concrete, hit these water tanks, cause another explosion. Everybody in Kiev's going to die. And he's like, that's 50 million people. The scientist says, no, it's 60 million. Don't correct him, all right? This is a dictatorship. Anyway, he, um, he basically tells them if we don't do all these things, there's going to be tens of millions more people that are going to die. The initial explosion, only two people died. How many people died overall? Well, depends on who you ask. The fire department showed up. They didn't know much about nuclear fallout, and so they treated it like an electrical fire. When they ran out of water, the firemen ran up on the roof. The truck driver said, we never saw those boys again. There were 237 workers that initially showed up. 134 of them went to the hospital for radi radioactive sensitivities that happened afterwards. 28 of them died. So the Soviet Union will tell you 30 or 31. There was one person that died, and they attributed it to and heart issue. And so 31 deaths. However, how big was their blast zone? Again, depends on who you ask. I'll give you some statistics. 
and some information about it. Initially, uh, they didn't do anything for 36 hours. They told the people even that lived right there that everything was fine. They continued to go about their business until some of them started getting sick and throwing up from radiation. They said that it tasted like metal in their mouths and that they had uh, pins poking on their face. And we've gotten testimony of people that die from exposure to those things before. Here's some of the numbers. Uh, When they did the initial evacuation, after three days, uh, there was a 6.2-mile radius from the blast. Then they evacuated 49,000 people. The next phase, they expanded that to 19-mile radius, and another 68,000 people were evacuated. But they know that there was 39,000 square miles of contaminated earth. Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia had the most, but like I said, it went as far as the Netherlands, Greece, Belgium. Today, today, so this is almost 40 years later, there's still a zone called the alienation zone, so just over a thousand square miles. It's about a third of Yellowstone National Park. The financial impact, uh, initial workers, there were 500,000 of them, estimated about $68 billion when converted from rubles and inflation is factored in. Don't ask me what formula for inflation because I don't understand it now, so there you go. 30 years later, um, in 2005, Belarus said that they had spent $235 billion, that adjusted number is $318 billion over 30 years. So what's the cost? There's a size. Think about death. Soviet Union says 31. However, they don't count abortions. It's estimated that over 150,000 abortions of what would have been healthy babies were voluntarily executed because of fear of radiation poisoning. 150,000 babies. One bomb that killed two people. There are different people that give different numbers. The Chernobyl Forum, they don't have an agenda. They predicted that um, the eventual death toll will be 4,000 from cancer and radiation poisoning. The most widely accepted study is from the World Health Organization. They say 9,000 cancer-related fatalities, mostly in the Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. There are others who say as many as 25,000. There was a publication in 2007 in Russia, a Russian publication that said that they believe there'll be 985,000, that's almost a million, premature deaths. When will the land and the area be safe again? Um, One group says 320 years, another says 3,000. The Chernobyl director says 20,000 years. Um, Greenpeace says tens of thousands of years. It's a blast zone. Interestingly, though, people live there. Some estimates say as many as 1,000. The accepted number is about 150. I'm not going to go figure it out. But you can go there and tour. I guess they're trying to pay back the $318 billion. Interesting. What's it like to live in a blast zone? Well, we should know. We live in one. Might not be nuclear, but it's the blast zone of a broken world. And we can talk about why, but it's complicated. We can simplify it and just say Genesis chapter 3, because of sin. But whose sin? And which sins? And is it the government? Is it one part of the government? Is it our generation, a previous generation? Is it 
all the bad people we disagree with? Or should we take some responsibility? What about the church? Because we've talked about already in a culture of compromise that we live in a culture where the world actually celebrates things that God condemns, like debauchery, drunkenness, hedonism, orgies, homosexuality. We're confused about genders. We've messed up the education system. Ask an educator what the problem is, the curriculum. Ask a philosopher, ask a pastor, ask a doctor. Ask, it depends on who you ask because there's a worldview issue taking place. So what about just from a biblical worldview as the church? Do we have some culpability in the brokenness of our current culture? We have to have some. How about the fact that we, I don't know, We'll settle for gimmicks rather than truly gathering and living in relationship with one another? How about the fact that we would rather have, oh, I don't know, a seeker-sensitive service for non-believers where we just play the coolest music and instead of having a gathering of the saints that equips the body? How about that we want to have our own plans for reaching the world rather than God's got a real simple one? Come follow me and then... As people are drawn to you because you live an upside-down life, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted, that you live so different from the world because your worldview is upside-down compared to the world, that they would, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, see your light and let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and they would glorify, not your good deeds, your Father who's in heaven. And anyone who's interested in that, teach them everything I've taught you. Ah! I think we should make a movie and everybody will get saved. Oh, okay. Well, maybe if we, and how about, and maybe we've been doing church, so we'll just try a different method, and how? We've traded our strategies for God's plan. Maybe we're culpable. We're grasping for political power rather than relying on the Holy Spirit's power. We'd rather have things be What? our preferences, our soapboxes, our, why when we go to repent nationally on the day of prayer, are we repenting of other people's sins? We're culpable at some level. We didn't take prayer out of school, but we repent of that. Huh. Maybe we should take some ownership. And that's part of living in the blast zone. Today's message is titled Life in the Blast Zone. And what we're going to talk about is this actually the blast zone of a broken world is an incredible blessing if you have a biblical worldview. If you do not, or you're faking, you're following of Jesus, it's a bad news. And so what we see, remember uh, what's happening in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, uh, this 15-year-old boy named Daniel is exiled from his hometown in Jerusalem, brought all the way to Babylon, 900 miles away. Along with some of his friends, we saw their names, uh, both Hebrew and they're renamed because part of Babylon's process of getting people to compromise is to change their identity. We talked about that a lot last week. And we talked about how th there's really a conflict of worldviews if you have a biblical worldview or any other worldview. Because there's really only two. There's one where God is central. There's one where man is central. There's one where God's kingdom, which is eternal, is what we live for. Or you can live for any other kingdom, but they're all temporary. There's one where God determines what's right and wrong. And there's one where your feelings or, if convenient, science or some kind of facts. But mostly your feelings because you're the authority. These worldviews are in conflict with one another. Everybody has a worldview. 
Whether you've tried to define it or not, whether you know all the big words or not, it doesn't matter. It's how you view the world. It's the lens through which you look. And so if you were here last week, remember I brought volunteers up and I gave them some glasses that actually made you see everything upside down. And they couldn't even give me a high five, right? Like it would have been dangerous to have them walk back to the sea. In the first service, I talked to the guy who volunteered afterwards. It was his first time at Southbridge. How about that? That's some courage. Give that guy a hand. His name's Jaeger. Yeah, give Jaeger a hand. Go ahead. That's right. I don't know if he's in here right now, but... And if you're at your second time at Southbridge or longer, you get your butts up here next time I ask for a volunteer, all right? But the point was, I used an apple the first week, talked about CNN. How can CNN and Fox see the same event and see it opposite? Because of the lenses through which they're looking. That's your worldview. Worldview questions are, who am I? Why am I here? What's right and wrong? What happens after I die? Does any of this really matter? How you answer those questions a result of your worldview. But remember I told you that as followers of Christ, your worldview is birthed in humility. Because the very fact that you know the truth is because you acknowledge you were helpless to solve a problem you had, your sin, and you needed to be rescued. That's Jesus. And so it's rooted in your humility. It shapes your identity. You're not who you feel like you are. You're who God says you are. It transforms your ethic, like what's right and wrong. God tells us what's right and wrong, whether we agree with it or not, because he's the authority. It informs your purpose because you're actually living for his glory, which isn't stealing from you. You were made for his glory. The only way you'll ever live the abundant, fulfilled life is to live the life you were designed to live. And so this biblical worldview changes everything about us. Daniel has one, but he comes into a culture of compromise. It's trying to woo him away from a biblical worldview. And it does it the same way our world does it. Isolation, get you alone. We live in crowded loneliness. Our phones, and not many real relationships. That's why tonight we'll talk about living as family. Get you isolated, indoctrinated. We will not tell you how to think. We will tell you what to think. And don't ask any questions because that's not how you learn. Counterintuitive, but okay. That's what they did. Remember, they trained him in the literature and the language of Babylon. Daniel's an interesting book because Daniel's Jewish. Most of the Old Testament is written in a Jewish language, Hebrew. But in Daniel chapter 2 today, we're reading, and notice verse 4, it changes to Aramaic. That's a Gentile language. And it's interesting because the dream that he's going to interpret, it's human history for Gentiles, everybody who's not Jewish is Gentile. Everybody here who's not Jewish is a Gentile. So it's a prophecy about how the world ends. And he writes it in their language. So my theory is, so they get it. Um, but he's being taught their language, their literature, their stories, their values, and their identity. Renamed Belshazzar. No, that's not the name that he uses. The book's called, not the book of Belshazzar, Daniel. He knows who he is regardless of what anyone else says because he knows what God says. And his name means God is my judge. And the way he lives proves to Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Cyrus, all the other kings, and he's yours too. And then there's gratification. So isolation, indoctrination, re-identification, and gratification. He's offered a job and a salary. If you don't do it and you won't compromise, Uh, at least you'll be canceled and irrelevant, maybe you'll be killed, and he doesn't, and God is faithful. Now in chapter two is three years later. So if we were watching a movie, somewhere in Babylon, three years later, Daniel chapter two, verse one. 
in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Dreams are interesting. Any of you have a bad dream last night, a good dream last night? He had dreams in his mind and was troubled and he couldn't sleep. So the dream was so bad he couldn't go back to sleep. So, you're the most powerful man in the world. This is what you do. The king summoned all the smartest guys. This, if it were today, would say professors and psychiatrists and doctors and philosophers, what it says here, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, to tell him what he had dreamed. So he's saying, I want you to tell me what the dream was. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. This is verse 4, which is ironic if you know the end of the chapter. I don't know if you read ahead or not. We sent out a small group study. Even if you're not in a small group, if you'd like to get that, sign up. We'll give it to you. We're not going to cover all of this chapter today. I know that because I've already preached in the first service. There's 49 verses, and we do not have that long. But the end of the dream, or the end of the chapter, uh, not only does Daniel tell the dream, but he interprets the dream, which we're going to get more into the prophecy when we get to Daniel chapter 7. The events that happen in Daniel chapter 1 through 6 are historical, and then chapter 7 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse chapter 12, is prophetic. And so we're going to be looking at a lot of prophecy in Daniel 7 through 12. Now, some of you are nervous about that because you're wondering if we're going to pull out charts and dates and pictures of dragons. Some of you, if I do, you're gone. Some of you, if I don't, you're gone. I get it. We'll talk about that a little bit later. The end, the dream is that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of this huge statue. It's probably of himself. We know historically he's just visited Egypt and they've taken over Egypt. The Egyptians made a big deal about dreams. In Bible times, they believed that dreams were how the gods, plural, spoke to you. And the way that Egypt would build a legacy was through statues. So most likely Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about himself and spoiler alert, plug your ears if you don't want to know this until the end of the sermon, the statue explodes. Huh. So Nebuchadnezzar's calling these guys in who are experts in interpreting dreams and the first thing the guy says is, may the king live forever. I'm Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going, yeah, I want to know about that. Because in my dream I just exploded. What does that mean? But I can't tell you because I want to know if you really know because think about this. Even in our culture, like there's all kinds of different views about dreams. Some of you don't think you dream, everybody does. Some of you are like lucid, you're interacting in your dream, having fights with people you have never met and winning battles and flying and don't have pants on for some presentation at work and all that kind of stuff. And so if you came to me after the service and told me your dream and told me if I didn't tell you the dream interpretation, you'd chop me into pieces. I'd first look at you and think, are you capable? (laughs) And then I'd think, "I, I might lie to you if I think you're capable. So if you tell me, I was given a presentation at work and I didn't have any pants on. I'd be like, all right, you're worried that you're not prepared enough and, and so you got to prepare. And, but I was flying afterward. The presentation goes so well that you're transcending your circumstances. And it's like, we could make something up. And throughout American history, you know, Freud thought everything was sexual. Then Jung said that it's not all sexual, but it does have meaning. And there's kind of been this move of like, well, it's just a playground. We scan brains. And so we know your executive function goes down. And it's more the creative, playful time. And so we just think it's part of your subconscious and other things that you've seen. And I don't know what you think about dreams, but I know that they thought God was speaking. 
And he's bringing in astrologers, the magicians, the sorcerers, the enchanters, and he's got a twist. Not, tell me what my dream means, first tell me my dream. Some scholars think he forgot it. The text doesn't say that, though. I think he's just testing them. This guy says, you're going to live forever. I don't think that's what an exploding statue means. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Verse 5, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. In other words, I'm not changing my mind. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces. So not just I'm going to kill you. We'll start with your pinky, take a break, go to your ear. We're going to cut you up. I'm going to burn your house down. Leave your home and anyone who's in it into piles of rubble, verse 6. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you win the lottery. You'll get gifts and rewards of the wealthiest kingdom in the world. A great honor. It's all or nothing. Are you in? You don't have a choice. It's your job. And so... Once they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream. And then verse 8, and the king answered, I'm certain you're trying to buy time. You realize that I firmly decided this. Verse 9, if you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things. He thinks they're imposters, hoping the situation will change. Maybe there'll be a new king. Maybe I'll have a different dream. Maybe my mood will just change. So tell me the dream. And I'll know that you can interpret it for me. Verse 10, this is key to understanding the whole passage. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever even asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. Pause. But there's one. John 1, do you know the Christmas story? God put on flesh. John 1, he tabernacled, dwelt, set up his tent. In our world, we sing that song. Love that song that Bryce had us sing that we have a lion in our lungs. Reminds me of Joshua 1 9. Be strong and courageous. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. There's one God who dwells with men, the one true God. And they say, that's not how the gods work. If you are an imposter, this is terrible news. If you have a biblical worldview, what an incredible opportunity. This is the blast zone of Nebuchadnezzar's bad dream. (laughs) We live in the blast zone of a broken world. Good news if you're a genuine follower of Christ. Bad news if you're pretending to follow Jesus because here's the first truth of why living in the blast zone can be a blessing or a curse. Life in the blast zone is an opportunity for the impossible, but it exposes the imposters. It's an opportunity for the impossible, and we have a God who does the impossible. Now to him who could do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Is anything too hard for God, Abraham? Nope. If you're able, heal my son. If I'm able, believe. Help me with my unbelief. He can even make you believe. He's the God of the impossible, but there are a lot of imposters. And what happens here, through the dream 
of this king, this pagan king, who is incredibly proud, who's dominating the world, who's wealthy, he builds one of the original seven wonders of the world, the Babylonian hanging gardens, the only one we have not found. But there are descriptions in historical books about how amazing and beautiful the tiered trees are, the architecture that is described as well beyond what you would expect from this time period. Spares no expense in art, in buildings, and he's dreaming up his own statue with a gold head, and he's told later, that's your kingdom, but there'll be an inferior kingdom that will come later. Silver. Medes and Persians, many people believe, but it's future from this perspective, so we're interpreting at that point. The Bible says Babylon doesn't say the other ones. However, when you line up what actually happens in history, what you see is... Even if you pick one of the deep, the scholars argue about, is it just Persia? Is it, what about, how long does Rome actually last? Because Eastern and Western and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't matter. God says it, and then it happens. And he said it before it happens. Here's why. Our God's the only God that can tell you the future because he's the only one that controls the future. If you have a biblical worldview and you're put in an impossible situation, you know that's an opportunity for God to show up. Hmm. What are impossible situations? They're usually tough. However, we read Daniel like, hey, he just stood up, resolved, I'm not going to eat the king's food, and now this, like, slow your roll. No, it's been three years from chapter one to chapter two. How long has it been since you've stepped out by faith? Hopefully not 30, but a lot of life is mundane, being faithful in the daily. And then there's seasons, sometimes of darkness, sometimes cancer, rebellious children, broken marriages, difficult, dark times of te- what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here, he's testing Who is it? It's uh, astrologers, verse 2, astrologers, magicians, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, that's interesting because we would think that's just an ethnic group. That's a group of philosophers um, who would, you know, teach at the universities, probably taught Daniel and and his buddies and, and talk about science and writings of science. And astrologers pretended to predict the future by looking at the stars. Magicians did all kinds of funky ceremonies and pretended to predict the future, which isn't that kind of funny? Like, even if they don't know the details of the dream, shouldn't they at least know whether they're going to die or not? Like, I don't know if anyone here is a psychic. If you're a psychic and you came to church today, I love you. I'm glad you're here. Um, How is this service going to end? No, just kidding. Uh, If you ever talk to a psychic and they ask you, like, what you want to do? How are you doing? Where are you? Well, you tell me would be my answer to them every time. You tell me. That's your job, right? You're just supposed to know. These guys are supposed to know this stuff. Nebuchadnezzar's going, I think you're liars. I think you're fakes. And there are a lot of them out there. And there's tests for them in almost every arena of life. Fashion, there's authentic, and there is fake, and there are people that do tests to figure it out. Art, A lot of fake art, but there are tests, experts, your identity. We talked about last week. There's fake IDs. There's people who steal IDs. You know, you see it in the Bible even. You know, Jacob's a liar, steals his brother's ID, and steals his birthright, steals money. And 
But then we've got holograms and marking some money. And we know that metals, they use heat. Opals is a jewel I'm not an expert in, but my wife and I did go on a mission trip to Australia. And part of the time we were there, we were teaching the Bible to a group, a community of about 500 people that lived on an opal mining area and watch your step because there's holes in the ground and there's actually underground housing and learned a lot of stuff. One of the ways that you find out if an opal is authentic or if they're trying to make it look way bigger than it actually is, is by applying heat, a heat test. I can't do it because I'm not an expert, but professionals apply heat and you can damage a genuine opal. So you've got to apply the right amount of heat. And the way that you oftentimes will fake an opal being more valuable than it is, is to take a really thin opal and put it over top of a piece of plastic or glass and it makes it look bigger. But when the heat's applied, you can see the cracks in it. Oh, that's a lot like life. When the heat's turned up and you do get a call about cancer and how you respond. Is it an opportunity for the impossible or does it expose that your faith wasn't really real anyway? The Bible talks a lot about God testing us. David prays that he'd be tested. That's something I'm not doing. Psalm 139. Search my heart, O God. Test me. Test my heart. Well, Jesus tells a parable in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13, of a dumb farmer who's just throwing seed everywhere. Like, what? how dumb is that? He's throwing seed in thickets and on rocky paths. And what he's talking about is that God's word goes out and different hearts receive it different ways. And he says there's one kind of heart that receives the word with joy and is excited until the trials come. Oh, interesting comment. Uh, the word for testing in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, those are the languages of the Bible, it all means trial by difficulties, some would say fire. James talks about it literally in that language of fire. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whether you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Abraham's tested with his most valuable thing in this world, his child. Hebrews says this, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced, he had a biblical worldview, the promises. He embraced the promises. He was living by God's word. He didn't even have as many promises as we do. He was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, hey, this, isn't, this doesn't even make sense, but I'm just going to do what you said and let you handle the results, God. Mm, that's faith. It's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned. Now think about this. Lazarus hadn't been raised from the dead. Elijah hadn't raised anybody. Nobody's been raised from the dead. But Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He passed the test. The test that Nebuchadnezzar is giving here exposes the imposters. But it's an incredible opportunity for Daniel and his friends to step into the impossible. And here's the second point. In life in the blast zone, in the blast zone, God will equip you, empower you, give you the tools you need to step into what he calls you to, which will be, in your own strength, impossible. That's why they call it faith. From our perspective, it oftentimes looks like risk. It's what happens here for Daniel. So notice 
Daniel's not at this meeting that goes so poorly in verses 1 through 12. But in verse 13, Daniel chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 12 just to give you some context. Um, the king got so angry when they said, this is impossible, you can't ask, because no king's ever asked this, you can't ask. king so furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon, which is bigger than the groups that's there with him. He's probably got the senior leaders there. Daniel's 18 years old. He's just graduated from school. He's an intern wise man, an associate wise man. He's the lowest on the totem pole. He's not even at this meeting, because look at what it says next. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel. He wasn't there. And his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, that word for guard in Hebrew means to slay. They were executioners. Arioch is the commander of the executioners, and he's the one who knocks on Daniel's door. That's not good news. If this guy's at your door, yeesh, you know how this thing works. But look what happens. He'd gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. Daniel spoke to him with wisdom, and we could learn a lot from this, and tact. Remember Daniel chapter 1? He doesn't demand his diet. He requests it, and he's shrewd. Be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers, Jesus tells us. But he's shrewd enough to put it in a way that his manager will benefit if this goes well. He speaks, we don't know all the words with Ariok, but he speaks with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, he doesn't demand it, he asks, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Why is his urgency my emergency? Um, <clears throat> Ariok then told him the whole story. At this, Daniel went to the king. If I'm the king, I'm like, who are you, 18-year-old? Cut his head off. Just rolling in here. But look at how God gave him favor. And he asked for time. He already told the wise men and enchanters, no more time. You're buying time. You're stalling. I think it's a sign you're an imposter. But he gives him time. And Daniel says he can interpret the dream. Here's the reality. Daniel doesn't know if he can interpret the dream. He knows God can, but he doesn't have a promise from God. That's how things will go. He's stepping out, not knowing the result. That's faith. And he's stepping into the impossible. No one's even asked anyone to do this before, king. No one's capable of doing this. But Daniel knows that he is a God who is capable of the impossible. And what we see in the passages, Daniel and his buddies go to God in prayer. And yes, they are given the interpretation of the dream. That's not always how it goes. Sometimes God says no. John the Baptist got his head cut off. Jesus asked if there was another way. There wasn't. He gets killed. Stephen, murdered. Paul, take away the thorn in my flesh. Three times he asked. And God said no. I wonder, did God audibly say no or did he just not do it? You get the hint, Paul? Because that's how it seems to work for me when I get a no. You're just not doing what I want. Maybe I need to plead more. Or maybe I'm wrong. Sometimes he empowers you for the deliverance. Sometimes he empowers you to endure the difficulty. How about Stephen? Let me read you a verse from Acts, Acts chapter 7. He's being killed, the first Christian martyr. Look what he prays. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my... He's still looking to Jesus. If I were him, I'd be like, open the earth and swallow these suckers. 
but make it painful. Skin them on the way down. Chop them to pieces. Because that's natural. Here's the problem. The Christian life isn't meant to be natural. Natural Christians who assimilate into the church, who assimilate into Christian culture, who've just always been around this stuff and are pretty moral people, they have a nominal impact for Jesus because they have a natural faith, which is no faith at all, by the way, because it's a supernatural religion. And so you should have a supernatural experience with Jesus. I love a a book that Francis Chan wrote. It's been a while since I've read it, but it's called The Forgotten God. It's about the Holy Spirit. Do you know one of the ways that God equips us is he actually puts the Holy Spirit in us at the point of salvation? Pretty amazing. Guess what the Holy Spirit does? Yep, convicts, comforts, teaches, reminds us of things, but gives us power. Many of us would rather have our own power, our own position, our own, than the Holy God inside of us? Really? That's amazing. Does it not blow your mind? The disciples are given the greatest commandment they can be given. This is what you're going to do with your life. Go make this up, but don't do it yet. Wait until you receive power from the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. Power will come upon you. Have you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit? Francis Chan in his book, Forgotten God, says, if we have God living inside of us, doesn't it just make sense that we should be different than people who don't have God living inside of them? Later in the book, he asked this question, which is convicting. Are you more kind, which he just starts listing fruits of the Spirit, because the Bible says the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Galatians 5, and 23, you can read it on your own or we can put it on the screen. It's a fruit, it's an evidence of the Spirit in your life. And so he says, are you more kind than your Mormon neighbor? They don't have the Holy Spirit, that's a false religion. The Jesus they talk about, not the Jesus of the Bible. Are you more peace-filled than a Hindu? Are you more self-controlled, disciplined than a Muslim? Shouldn't we have that? And maybe you're not the kindest guy on the block, but you're more kind now than three years ago. Oh, that's evidence of the whole, that's supernatural evidence. Do you forgive other people? The Bible says... If you're forgiven, then you forgive. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Oh, that's a test. Because forgiveness is not natural. It's supernatural. There's tests in our lives. Some people say the reason why Christians get cancer is so that people who don't have Jesus can see a different response, a peace that surpasses understanding, and be drawn to Jesus through our dark days. Here's the reality. For us, not just the impact it has on the world, It's in the dark days that God develops deep roots of dependence on him. That's what happens in this story is what what happens next is Daniel, he's given the time, which is a miracle in and of itself. And then he goes and prays. Now we know that God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3. His divine, his power has given us all the power we need for life and godliness. So he's given us everything we need We have access to it through prayer. We're in a battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. And we're told what our weapons are, Ephesians chapter 6. One of them is prayer. Daniel goes to to pray. He knows the equipment works. There's a scene in the Chernobyl documentary. It's really interesting. It's a fun one. I don't know if it really happened or not. We do know that they had to use miners to come and dig underneath the reactor because the reactor was falling through the ground. 
and they needed to seal it up before it got into the earth, because if it got into the earth, <clears throat> kill a bunch more people. And there's a scene where the scientist and the politician are sitting in a trailer together, trying to figure out what to do next. They brought in about 100 miners. The politician looks at the scientist and says, have you ever talked to a miner? He's an academic. He looks at him and goes, no. He goes, my advice? Tell him the truth. These men work in the dark, so they see everything. Guy walks in, he's pretty rough, <clears throat> pretty crass. <clears throat> he's a miner, and he says, mask slapped on the table. Does this thing work? It's a mask. Scientist says, some, it works some. Then the guy grabs cigarettes from the scientist, starts smoking his cigarettes, says, what's the job, what are we doing? So this reactor is gonna fall through on us while we're in there? Not if you get done on time. <laughs> the guy gets up to leave, he throws the mask, he goes, the mask doesn't work or you'd be wearing one, and he leaves. Later, he asked for a fan. They said, we can't put a fan in here because it'll blow radioactive dust into your lungs. So the guys all start working naked because it's so hot. The scientist comes out and says, you can't work naked, the clothes are like protection. And the guy goes, really? How much? Yeah, you're right. The equipment they were being given was a joke. But some of us act like what we've been given is not really useful because we don't use it. Think about if you were going into battle and you were given tool. Like, have you ever seen Mission Impossible? Ethan Hunt's always given an impossible mission. This is your mission. If you choose to accept it, break into this super secret vault and then hang over the thing. But if you sweat on the ground, catch it and blah, 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 blah. Device explodes. And then he's given a bunch of tools to do the job, like a mask maker that also has a voice augmentation that you can just be somebody else all of a sudden. Pretty awesome. Suction cups to climb a building in Dubai. Like, awesome. But if you just had a bunch of awesome gadgets, you'd be a collector. But if you're going into a battle, you're a fighter, and you'll be given exactly what you need for the circumstances you will come into contact with, which is what God does with us. The tool to access them, prayer. And you see these guys, they pray, and we could walk through the prayer. We don't have time for all that. What you see here is a humility, a sincerity, a boldness in praying. And that they go together. Do you even have people that you can pray with? Who are your people that have, these guys probably also lost their family. These guys have been through the difficulty. The last three years together in school, being bombarded by things that are not accurate to their faith and knowing we can take the true, we gotta filter this out. How do we stay focused and faithful? These are his guys. And notice when he names them, he doesn't use Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He uses their Hebrew names. And so you see here in this passage, that he comes in and he says, hey, we gotta and look at what he says for praying. Plead the mercies of God. We need help. I don't know who taught you to pray or how you learned to pray. I remember the first prayer meeting I ever went to, I was actually invited to speak. <laughs> I was like, you speak at a prayer meeting? I didn't even know that. What do I, how long can I talk? Aren't we supposed to be praying, was my thought. So I went in and just talked about praying, which for me was talking to God. And then I was done speaking and I realized I messed up because I didn't know I was supposed to do it in Old English. Thou wast heavenliest fathers. Lots of THs, lots of THs. And um, 
I didn't realize there was a lot of jargon of words. I didn't even, I hadn't been brought into the club yet of prayer gatherings. I just thought it was like, you know, I'm dry. I live, grew up in Michigan. You hit a patch of black ice. Save me! It's like, that's prayer. And you know what? I think that's what God wants. Read Psalm 88. Why is that even in the Bible? Isn't that offensive to God? The prayer is a bunch of stuff that's not even true. But God, you want to learn something about God? The very fact that's in the Bible tells you something. Listen to Tim Keller talk about a professor he had in seminary who talked about Job's prayers. Job says some terrible stuff in the book of Job. He doesn't curse God, but he says some things, and he's not condemned. And instead, at the end of the book, he's honored. And his, the other friends that seem to have the better theology are told, you better have Job pray for you. Job was wrong, but he kept talking to God. I don't know what these guys said, but I'm going to guess it's pretty honest. What if we, as the church in America, the evangelical, I'm not talking about the Orthodox Church, the Catholic, the evangelical church in America, like on National Day of Prayer, instead of praying about the Ten Commandments coming out of the schools, or praying about all the abortions or gender issues, what if we prayed about our sins? If my people, called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, repent, I will heal their land. Not pray. How many times in the Bible is it a good thing to be praying about somebody else's sin? None. None times. Read the whole thing. Let me know if you find one. I'll change that. Um, the reason why Israel is even in exile right now, the primary sins are idolatry and not observing the Sabbath. Really? What about adultery? What about murder? No, not obeying the Sabbath. What if one day we get to heaven and we find out our church could have had a revival, but there was too much gossip? We don't talk about that one. Yeah, I, was, I could have, but instead I had to discipline you because you guys just kept talking about each other. Your slander, or covetousness. Covetousness? That's like commercials. What if instead we looked at other people and thought, oh man, to have all that, that's a heavy responsibility to carry. I guess I can't be trusted with that yet. Instead, we are greedy. I'm a gluttony. Have you ever been to another country? They do not have our portion sizes. We have supersized it all. But nobody talks about that. Just adultery and murder and all the sins that most of us are so self-righteous that we would never consider. What if we repent of our own? That requires humility, authenticity, boldness. That's what they do. And then when Daniel is given the dream, we don't know if he dreamt the dream or if he saw the dream. He doesn't rush off to Nebuchadnezzar. He praises God. Because our third point is this, it's in the blast zone. The mysteries are made known. The mysteries of God. The first thing is about who he is. Yes, about the future. Amazing. And if there, I don't know, I'm trying to go through the whole end of this. And worship team, you can come. Standing at the back wondering, is this guy ever going to shut up? Yep, come on up here. It's fine. Um, I want to just read to you verse 28, Daniel chapter 2. Pretty amazing for the rest of the whole book. It's a theme, by the way. It is impossible. Nebuchadnezzar, no one can do this. But I have a God 
reveals, some of your translations say the hidden things, the mysteries. Mystery is a, a fun word in our culture because we love, as Americans, we love a good mystery, don't we? There's a season two of the Murdoch murders. Maybe OJ really didn't do it. I don't know. Who shot JFK? Whatever happened to that flight from Malaysia, Flight 370? Oh, manifest. We'll just watch it. There we go. Why is Hollywood so fascinated with end-of-the-world movies? How will it happen? Aliens, asteroids, viruses, robots, AI's going to take over. Why, why, why? UFOs. What? UFOs is an interesting topic in America. For years, a lot of people thought, Area 51, the government's lying to us. There's got to be something. And then during COVID, everybody lost their mind during COVID. And so I think the government just thought to themselves, they're all going crazy anyways. Let's just tell them UFOs are real. So they did. Now I think people are like, UFOs can't be real. The government always lies. And so, but why? Why are we interested? Do you want to know why? Ecclesiastes 3.11. It's true whether you're a believer or not a believer. It's one of the mysteries of life. It's a worldview issue. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Um... We all long for more. So, Stephen Hawking, it's, it's, there's aliens out there. But I'm an atheist. Followers of Christ. That's why you want the prophecies. Why you're like, why didn't you skip the history stuff? Let's just talk about the church and the dragons. You know there's more. And you want to know, do you matter? You do. The point of this, and while it lays out world history and points to the fact that God is in control of the future, that he is sovereign, it reveals his character. He's the one who changes the seasons, appoints the kings. It points out every kingdom, whether it's Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, those are the kingdoms that most scholars believe are being represented by the gold and the silver, the bronze, and the iron, and the feet of clay and iron, and ten toes. Is that the United Nations, a revived Rome? We'll talk about it in Daniel 7. They all fade. They're all temporary. There's a rock that's cut out without hands. That's Jesus. Jesus is the rock. Scholars don't debate that. He is the cornerstone, the stumbling block, the one that people rejected. He is the rock. That wasn't cut out with hands? Yeah, he always was. And he comes in tabernacles with us. And he's going to establish a kingdom that will never end. An eternal, that's the Christmas story. Mary, your son, the line of David. Holy Spirit, power has come upon you. Even though you're a virgin, give birth. His kingdom will never end. If you live your life for that kingdom, it matters. If you don't, it doesn't. I'll conclude this quote by old pastor, C.T. Studd. Only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Father, we come before you today asking, pleading for you to poke our hearts, show us any offensive ways in us, Psalm 139, 26, test us, Oh, I don't want that. I don't know why um, you've had us go through some difficult times as a family. And I'd just like it to be over. But I know that you're deepening our dependence. I know there's other people here that the same thing is true. I know there's sin that needs to be repented of. I pray you give us the humility, the power. Some people couldn't even acknowledge it. 
but you can make people who don't believe believe. Will you give us that power? There were three men who went into the basement in Chernobyl voluntarily thinking they would die. Most pastors tell the story they were willing to give their lives and they died. They didn't die. That's a mystery. How did they not die? No one wanted to do it for money, but then they were told it's the right thing to do and you're the only one that can do it. Followers of Christ were the only ones that can rise up in this culture. We're the only ones that can be a light in darkness. We're the only ones that have the Holy Spirit. We must stand out in the blast zone in a place of darkness in a broken world. We point to wholeness in a temporary place. We point to eternity in a place that's man-centered. We give them more. God, God, will you let your light shine through us, please? Supernaturally do things I couldn't ask or imagine or know what to pray. Heal hurts. Remove hang-ups. Cancel debts. Reconcile marriages. Heal diseases. Right now in this moment, heal back problems. Heal blindness. Heal arthritis. Heal cancer. For some, that means take us home eternal healing, for some temporary healing here, now. Do it right now in this moment. Have the Holy Spirit move, sense tangibly your presence. Some people just need to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. God, make us your witnesses to testify about you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Because it's what I think he would say. And I say amen because I believe it's true. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.